0: Get your day started with Keyshawn, J. Will, and Zubin every morning at 6 a.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio. From Jay Williams' expertise on the NBA to Keyshawn Johnson's insights into the latest in the NFL moves, don't miss a morning with Keyshawn, J. Will, and Zubin. Or listen to the podcast of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, 30 for 30 is back with Breakaway, a film about WNBA superstar and activist Maya Moore. This film explores the story of Moore, one of the best basketball players in the world, stepping away from the sport for a remarkable reason. To fight for a man she believed was wrongly imprisoned. Watch Breakaway, live Tuesday, July 13th at 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN, presented by Hyundai. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Pfeiffer. My dilemma is, do I get my hopes up for the Philadelphia 76ers?
0: Well, as you can tell, we recorded this episode before Dan's beloved Sixers were eliminated from the postseason. And my answer, frankly, might have been different way back when their issues were mostly whether Embiid would be healthy enough to play and not Ben Simmons taking an already flawed and much criticized oeuvre to new heights with the passed up open dunk that now kind of sort of stands for the beginning of the end of their season and probably the Sixers as currently constructed. But I think my answer would be the same most would tell you now's a good time to get cynical never believe again until the final buzzer has sounded and rings are on the Sixers fingers not let them into your heart until they've done the unthinkable and actually won it all but as a Cubs fan I know that there's still some magic in believing that there's always next year in enjoying an early season run of contention even if it ends in, I don't know, a 10 game losing skid or longer. Well, it, could, it could be longer. A skid that makes it nearly impossible to turn on the game at night in the beginning of July with any hope or happiness in your heart remaining. It's still worth it though, because when they pay off your loyalty, like the Cubs did for me in 2016, it actually somehow feels better for all the hurt you went through with your feller Sixers fans. Like, you know, pledging a frat or Bonding in a foxhole or scaling a skyscraper on your first one on one date on The Bachelor. That shit brings you together. So I say keep believing, keep getting your hopes up, even if they ultimately get crushed. Because honestly, what else are you going to do? Root for the Knicks?
1: That's what she said.
0: This week's guest is Dan Pfeiffer, a New York Times bestselling author, podcast host with Crooked Media. Honestly, I obsess about my crooked media pods, Pod Save America, Love It or Leave It, uh, almost as obsessively as he does about the Sixers. F- Pfeiffer was the senior advisor to U.S. President Barack Obama for strategy and communications from 2013 to 2015. He's the author of two books, Yes, We Still Can, Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter and Trump from 2018, and Untrumping America, A Plan to Make America a Democracy Again in 2020. He also has a subscription newsletter called The Message Box. I really enjoyed talking to him about a wide range of things, his obsession and and long time following of the Sixers and Allen Iverson, uh, how he was charmed by Obama on their first meeting, meeting his wife at the White House, splitting his pants in the White House, ultimately choosing to leave the White House before Obama's tenure ended. Uh, Also, how he faces the barrage of bad news that he has to wade through daily to do the work that he does and how he can find hope in these times, uh, which was an answer that I needed from him because I'm trying to do the same. So I really think you guys are going to enjoy this. That's what she said. Super excited to have Dan on the pod. And, you know obviously people who want to get in the weeds on policy can go to pod save America and the rest of crooked's, uh, amazing offering. So I want to focus more on you and your career and your books and also your relationship to the work that you do. Um, which will of course mean talking about the issues that propel your work. But, um, I'm really most fascinated by people who are immersed in what has been for me, uh, an inescapable hell, even on the periphery. <laughs> and I want to know how you compartmentalize or don't, uh, or escape the news or don't. Um, And then we'll talk about, of course, your Sixers fandom and everything else. So I'm super excited to chat today. And I want to go way back to uh, when you were a kid growing up. I know you spent um, some time overseas, Brazil, Japan, but then uh, was it around 11 that you settled in Wilmington, Delaware?
1: So, I was born in Wilmington. I lived there until I was five. Then we moved to Brazil. My dad worked uh, for a company that sent him overseas. So, we were Brazil for three years, home to Delaware for a few years, back to Japan, then to Japan, and then back to Delaware for high school. So,
0: Oh, my gosh. OK, so I hate to say it because, of course, now, you know, there's the great Elena Deladon there's the, you know, the president of the United States. But when I think of Delaware, the immediate thing I think of is in Wayne's world when they can't think of anything and they just say, hi, we're in Delaware. So tell me, especially when once you've gone to these lengths of the world for other for other things and you come back and settle in Delaware, what's it all about?
1: Well, when I came back to Delaware, I would say going from living in Tokyo, where I used to take the subway to school and could move around, and it was incredibly. At like eight years area. old. Yeah, and and uh, Tokyo like zero crime in Japan, so we would like I would go to go to school, I would take the subway home, we'd stop and do things. It was very much like living in a city, but like if it'd be sort of like growing up in New York, but if there was no crime and you'd mm. have to worry about anything. Uh, so Delaware was uh, kind of a tough hit when we came home that first summer when I was 15 and <laughs> I didn't have my driver's license. And so my mom would just drop my brother and I off at the mall, which is basically a long hallway in Wilmington at, with several stores and then pick us up a few hours later. Uh, and it really, I always felt like what really summed up Delaware, what was at, at the time, I've come to greatly appreciate my home state, but at the time it was summed up by the sign when you enter the state that says home of tax-free shopping. <laughs>
0: all we got that's yeah. that's what we're leading with <laughs> oh man okay so what what were you into as a kid sports music politics
1: politics a little bit like my parents are not political in the sense they didn't work in politics they didn't go to fundraisers or work for politicians but we talked about the news a lot and because i lived abroad you sort of had this perspective on the u.s but my main thing was sports always sports. That was what I was most obsessed with. That's what I thought my career would be in. Um, I always sort Mm. of thought I would be a high school basketball coach was sort of where I thought I would go for a long time. Um, It's what I, basketball, sports in general, but basketball in particular were my absolute obsession, my, and still probably my whole life.
0: I read that you went and saw Dr. J and and Moses Malone uh, when you were really young.
1: I did. That was my first basketball experience. My dad took oh, cool. myself and my friend to one game in the very early 80s, obviously, to see the Sixers um, play. And then that was really sort of the high point of Sixers fandom for a very long time. <laughs>
0: for, for a while, yeah. Yes. Uh Did you play sports?
1: I played uh, basketball and soccer in high school. I was decidedly mediocre at both <laughs> um, with no real, uh, I had some very brief. Ambitions of maybe playing basketball at a D three school um after high school, but it never really manifested itself, and I ended up uh going to Georgetown, where I most definitely was not going to make the basketball team.
0: Right. right. Um, well, that's why you start dreaming of coaching at a young age. That's right. Most exactly. People dream of playing. It's when they realize exactly. that's not going to happen. Yes, I grew. Uh, to, start-
1: I grew to be six feet tall. By the summer before my seventh grade year, so my seventh grade basketball season was great, and then I grew right. an inch and a half in the the ensuing thirty years. So it kind of it was the it was a case of diminishing returns.
0: Right, exactly. Um, I always wish I was like one of those ones that got all the guard skills and then sprouted, so yes, that I'd be yes. like the big with the guard skills. Instead, I was six feet when I was uh, in eighth grade. So that yeah, it was I was like, the exact
1: opposite of Anthony Davis. Yes. Is what i was.
0: right, exactly. Uh, also, never learned the left. I should have broken the right at some point point and pick that up. Um, so you, you mentioned Georgetown. You were there at the same time as Allen Iverson. So like the world keeps giving you these moments that are steering you towards the Sixers.
1: Yes. Uh, so I, we were in the same uh, same class. So he, he arrived from campus at the same time I did. Georgetown uh, gave allowed students to buy season tickets for $96 a uh, season. Wow. And it was first come, first serve seating. And it was when the Georgetown and then the then Washington Bullets played out in Landover, Maryland at the Cap center. Um, and we would take a bus, basically, two and a half hours in ru- DC rush hour traffic to get to the game and to get there as early as possible. Because if you were the first one in line, you sat courtside under the basket. Wow. Um, yeah. So it was an incredible uh, basketball experience for at least the two years in which Allen Iverson was attending Georgetown.
0: You said you were in the same class. Uh, I would imagine you weren't in the same classes. as.
1: No, we were not in the same classes. You never crossed
0: paths in we the never, study
1: hall. No, we did not cross paths in the study hall. But he, the Georgetown, like, this is the old, you know, this is John Thompson. And those guys went to class. They had to go to every single class. And, the, and they had, uh, so, like, I had friends who were in intro to theology, which is a Georgetown required freshman year class, and intro to uh, philosophy that had... from that class, Athel Harrington or Allen Iverson or Heidi White or any of the players from that period in those classes. And so I did not have classes with Allen Iverson, but I did have friends who did. And he he was always there because of, I think, looming fear of what John Thompson would do if they did not show up.
0: Right right well and he had such a tie to thompson and his belief in him that i'm sure there was a feeling of not wanting to disappoint um so you graduate magna cum laude from georgetown so you were clearly going to class um at the beginning you wanted to be a lawyer and i think i read you said you thought you'd be a lawyer and hate your life um which (laughs) is uh, what i find a lot of lawyers say when they transition into being agents or writers or journalists um i happen to come from a family of lawyers um both my parents remain remain lawyers and enjoy it. so I, I don't always uh, uh, understand, but I, I do get that plenty of people call themselves recovering lawyers. So you figured it out before you even got into it and pivoted to politics. Um, how quickly after you graduated did you find yourself actually working in in politics?
1: Sort of right away. Um, I like my plan, and this was just like pure poverty of imagination on my part was <laughs> it was just like, I sort of thought like what you should do is you should go to you know, either go to law school or medical school or business school. And I would do one of those things. That's what like a lot of people that I, you know, people's parents I knew were people I thought that like, I thought that's what this is sort of what you did. And I wasn't great at science. I wasn't great at math. So like my path was pretty established pretty early on. And then in college, I, when I was at Georgetown, I did an internship in the White House in what was then vice president Gore's office. And it was this phenomenal experience. I, you know, even though I did nothing more than make copies and fetch coffee and do all the things interns do, I like caught the bug. It was a very exciting time to be there. And I ended up deciding because of that, um, that ended up staying, sort of working part time for the in the White House for the rest of my time in, you know, as part of so like an adjunct of the intern program for the rest of my time in college, and then went to work. And I sort of said to myself, "Well, I'll just go work on Al Gore's campaign after, because he I graduated in '98. He was going to run. His campaign was kicking off as I was graduating. He would, of course, win. I would maybe get a chance to go work in the White House for a little bit or work in government, and then I would go to law school." And obviously, history shows that that's not exactly how things turned out. Um, So I ended up in politics, but I kept thinking it was a way station. I kept delaying law school to the point where it would have been um, uh, awkward at the age at which I would have gone to law school, I think.
0: (laughs) So that's incredible to have gotten that opportunity in the White House at such a young age. Um, And to me, it feels like certainly now younger people are more invested in politics right away because it's more inescapable in general, how those decisions and the policies are affecting your everyday life. Maybe it's just me and and what I was interested in, but when I was, um, when I was graduating college a um, couple years after you, um, it just felt a lot easier to sort of ignore it or to not have it be um, a focus um, while you're young and trying to figure out what you're doing with your life. And I wonder, um, did you find yourself often working alongside people significantly older than you or were you always, at least early on, in positions that were mo- predominantly you know, filled with other just recent college grads and stuff?
1: a little bit of both it was like it was a different period i think for how people thought about politics it was you know it's bill clinton was president the cold war was over the economy was roaring most of my friends in college who didn't go to grad school went to work at a a consulting firm or went to a lot of them went to wall street and it was just sort of like what people did i was the only one of my friends who took a job in politics and it and even at, like I was at Georgetown, Bill Clinton was president of the United States. He was a graduate of Georgetown, and politics wasn't even talked about that much. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and so it's
1: things changed changed a lot. And it there there you know it was you know obviously any entry level position it's a lot of self selected group of young people, but you know for a lot of time uh, there were people a lot older than I was that I was working with or dealing with. And when you're 22 or 23 and you're working with older people, you kind of have to, you know, act older than you are and be more serious than you probably are just so that, cause you the natural assumption is that people are going to think you're just sort of some young, dumb kid. So you probably, uh, I, I, I misspent some of my twenties trying to pretend like I was in my thirties.
0: Right. Totally. Yeah. Totally. I did the opposite. Um, I've just been dragging out kind of late twenties, early thirties for as long as possible. Um, and re- recently, especially in my career, I'll have these up and comers be like, Well, people like you that I've been watching since I was a kid, and I'm like, Gah, keep forgetting I'm old until you remind me. So one of your early jobs was in uh, President Clinton's uh, initiative to add 100,000 police officers, cops, community policing, uh, what was it called? Community-oriented policing services. Um, Without getting too deep into it, this was a long time ago. But are there things like that that you were working on or invested in that you would have a very different point of view on if they were revisited now?
1: Oh, 100%. Like My my job there is I did public relations for them, and it's, it's starting out at the... Most basic level, I was faxing press releases. I was writing and faxing press releases to people, and I had several people over my head. I got some promotions over the year and a half I was there, and got a little more substantive. But yeah, I would feel very like we, politics has changed so much, the way I think of the mm-hmm. world has changed so much that like there. While there are things I worked on that I think were of good intent, and I think a lot of what underlined some of the original thinking of that program was good intent. A lot of it was. I wouldn't like, I, you know, you don't want to take like too much. Like it feels almost, um, uh, like self-aggrandizing to suggest, like you, when you, especially when you're a small person, uh, you know, play a, a person playing a small role in a bigger thing. That it's like I would do this differently when you really totally. It it's right. like moving along well, without you. Um, and but, it's yeah, fascinating
0: would, though how we do that in politics yeah. in general, because yeah. the expectations for someone to have a through line in their career, even as everything around them and they themselves are changing, is so flawed. But we don't do that in that many other places, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I sort of thought like, at the time it was just like, it, I needed a job. It was a job. It was a job in government working for a president that I supported. And you know, I certainly had no real expertise in policing. Like I, like, I certainly would not, like, you wouldn't redo that program over again. You wouldn't do it in the same way. And it's ultimately, this is one of the things that, you know, as I've gotten older and spent many times on politics and sort of been reflecting on things that went right and things that went wrong with various people I worked for or did in my life is that, the point is, is you learn and you change from it right now, it's not what you're not like frozen in amber for what you believed when you were 22 or what you did when you were 22. It was like things change, you change. And it's like, how do you respond to that change? And what do you do with that information that I think is where people should be judged and thought of?
0: Which is the conversation we should be having about every single mention of cancel culture and instead we have this incredibly stupid binary black and white bullshit where no one is demanding that you rewrite history it's merely a question about whether that's still how you feel and if not are you willing to address it and be transparent about how you no longer feel that way and if you're not we're going to ask you some more questions about it pretty simple to me but uh, so are so many things that we waste (laughs) our time debating. Um, So you went on to work for Al Gore's presidential campaign, a couple different Democratic governors and senators, Mm. and you get pulled into the Obama campaign by someone who had worked with you at at Senator Daschle's office. What did you think when you were first asked to join the campaign and how likely did you think it was that Barack Obama would have a successful campaign?
1: So I had worked for Senator Tom Daschle, who had been the Senate Uh, Democratic leader in the early 2000s. And he, in 2004, he was planning to run for president in 2004, and I had just gotten to know him, and he came to me and said that he was pretty sure he was gonna run for president. And if he did, he'd want me to work for him and sort of asked me to, while he made his final decision with his family, whether he'd run, whether I would not take another job. And I, I loved the guy and I said, absolutely. And I was so honored, I was like 24 years old. It was so exciting. And we plan that campaign, plan that campaign. I was driving to the airport to fly to South Dakota, where Senator Nashua was from, for his announcement speech when his chief of staff uh, called me and said that he he had changed his mind and was not running. And so I got left at the altar without a He very nicely gave me a job, mm. another job, but without the presidential campaign that I was so excited to work on. You flash forward four years, that same chief of staff, a man named Pete Rouse, who would then became President Obama's chief of staff. Uh, I found myself unemployed um, right before that presidential campaign started because the candidate I was going to work for decided not to run again. So I got left at the altar again. And then <laughs> Pete, Pete Rouse called me uh, and asked me to go to coffee. He took me to the same coffee shop he had taken me to pitch me. On the national race, and told me that Barack Obama was almost certainly running. He was just going to go to Hawaii and make a final decision with his family. And if he did, would I be willing to talk to him about possibly working on the campaign? And I spent the whole time thinking. Not only was was I skeptical he was going to win, I was skeptical he was going to run. I was positive that he was going to um, like my previous candidates just decide not to run, and I would just right. that, that was this was really the long star dried. Yes, right. exactly, and. <laughs> Uh, and he did decide to run and I was very, I was skeptical. I did not know him. I had never met him. I hadn't actually even watched his convention speech that was so famous in real time. Um, because I'd been working on another campaign at the time and wasn't super focused on it. And i had had a bunch of friends like this guy, Pete, who had worked for him, who were working for him and thought he was the absolute best in someone that, you know, I had to meet and was a superstar and all that. And I was a little skeptical because people tend to political folks tend to fall in love and out of love with candidates very easily, and everyone's boss mm-hmm. is the absolute best, and it's the next so and so and all <laughs> of that. And I went in and met with him for maybe forty-five minutes, and I walked out of there just so blown away that I accepted a job without knowing uh, what my title was, what my salary <laughs> was, or whether I when I was going to have to move to Chicago, which was contingent upon accepting the job. <laughs> I just like walked
0: out. He's a charmer. Yeah, in I the know, movie, I was like, how that out in- Yeah. We've got the Obama singing, I'm so in <laughs> like that's going through wild. your mind at one meeting. Yes. <laughs> um, well, it once you joined and once Obama won, you had a pretty quick ascent. Um you know, you're you're starting out as the transitions communications helper. Then you become the communications director for the White House. Then shortly thereafter, you get promoted to senior advisor for strategy and communications. So very clearly, you took a liking to each other, and he he found you very useful. Mm-hmm. Um, People can read your book, your first book um, of, yes, we still can, politics in the age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump for some of the best stories from the White House and insight into what it was to work in the White House. Uh, But I want to ask you about a couple. One of them is, of course, the pants splitting. Um, I I just love the idea of being in the Oval Office and hearing the rip uh, as someone who had my pants split while filming a television show. (laughs) Uh, I wonder uh, which is worse, truly.
1: I mean, it's it's a fair question. I uh, so the the story here is I was uh, getting ready to brief the president for he was going to do a press conference, and I always sort of led press conference prep. It was something that I had done since the beginning of the campaign, where I you know I would sort of organize it and say this is what this is what you're doing, here's what we're expecting, that and I was like, this person's going to tell you about this thing in the news you should know about. I sort of orchestrated. it. So I had to be like on, and I was I walked into the Oval Office and. I guess it's probably safe to say that this is probably not my most fit period in life. Um, and I, this, the couches are very deep that were in the Oval Office back then. And I sat down, I didn't fully judge the height. And when I sat down, I heard the rip, but, you know, I wasn't entirely sure what exactly had happened. Um, so I spent the whole time like knowing in the back of my head, and there's like 20 people in the room, right? There's a cabinet secretary in the room, there's the President of the United States a bunch of people whose opinion I respect. And I know the whole time I'm talking to them that there's a very good chance when I stand up, my underwear is going to be available to the entire world to see. And so I, in addition, like, it really of the things I'm most proud of in my life, being able to get through this press conference prep without anyone knowing that I was having this internal crisis was high on that list. Because I spent the whole time thinking about how I was going to get out of the room without anyone knowing. And so I basically just pretended after it all ended and everyone gathered and a bunch of people, President went back to his desk and a bunch of people went with him to talk to him about some more things. And I just pretended to look at my notes until everyone had their back turned. And then I kind of wiggled my way out along the the wall with my (laughs) posterior to the wall so that no one could see it. And hustled back to my office where I um, frantically dialed a friend, uh, my very good friend, Alyssa Mastromonaco, who worked in the White House with me to, to see if she had safety pins. And uh, let's just say the rip was such that there were no amount of safety pins sufficient to solve this problem. <laughs> so I went to a meeting later. I had to go to a meeting that later that day in the Capitol with the staff of uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And I wore my trench coat the entire time, even though it oh was like a hundred degrees in the room. <laughs> it was like, it was winter outside, but inside it was so hot. And I'm okay, like, I will not take it off. Yeah, it was not, <laughs> it was not, uh, not, there was nothing cool about it. Um, but I did get out of the room without anyone seeing. So uh, in that sense, the president did not get to make fun of me in real time for what Just, just it, later. He had to wait until my book came out of. to uh, make fun of me for it. <laughs>
0: We'll get right back to the interview, but quick aside here, so since I did reference the splitting of my pants, uh, I used to be a Rock and Republic jeans devotee back in the day, but that particular brand always seemed to sprout holes in the lower butt crotch area after a year or two of heavy wear, and I didn't realize that a pair I was wearing was on its last legs when I was taping an episode of Chicago's Best. It's a weekly show here in Chicago featuring restaurants, bars, activities, neighborhoods around the city. And I was hosting an episode about a specific neighborhood that we were about to explore. And there was a Jackie Chan poster on a wall in an alley. And I high kicked the hell out of that thing, trying to meet with Jackie's leg. And boom, right down the middle, straight up the backside. Of course, I couldn't go around taping all day with a big hole in my butt. So I had to take a train home, change into other jeans, take a train back to finish the shoot Um, And sadly, not the only time I've split my pants in public because I split my pants dancing at a bar in Southern California once, had to pull the old sweater you tie around the waist. Um, As of yet, have not split my pants when I do splits, the splits, that is, at uh, occasions where I'm overserved, which is more often than you might think that I bust out the splits in the middle of, say, a wedding I was at this past weekend twice. Let's get back to the interview. Another highlight from the White House um, was meeting your your wife, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, we uh, um, we worked very uh, near each other for a very long time before uh, I switched offices, and then uh, we started dating.
0: How do we play this game? Do we pretend that it's a friendship? Then it's more. Then it's how do we tell people? Then it's never tell people till we're gone. Is there is there any hard and it fast rules that's, um, that's uh, observed there? I would put it this way. Uh,
1: we we were friends for a long time, I think, with mutual interest in something more than friends. And slowly over time, it came to be. And then we were uh, secretive about it for a while because we were all work with the same people. And were it was like if it didn't work, it would be just awkward for lots of people and weird. So we kind of wanted right. to make sure that it was uh, real before it was what we had thought and hoped it would be for a long time um, before we... Uh, we're more public about it, and then it was sort yeah. of a, a slow rollout plan among various people we work with.
0: Rollout, I love yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, it's very wise. Um, it yes. also, you know, fulfills all of our fantasies of like Veep and and everything else yes. to have this, you know, romance going on alongside the hustle and bustle and drama of you know global politics. Um, so, what is it like to leave the White House and to have your tenure end, regardless of whether you're great at it? I mean, it, it's a job that ends even if you're crushing it.
1: So I left with a little less than two years remaining in the administration. I had been by the time. (laughs) Yeah, by the time I had left, I was the last person, other than Barack Obama, who had been there since the first day of the campaign. Wow! The entire White House period. Uh, when I told him I was leaving, he pointed out that that was not an option available. You to were him. the only one left, <laughs> right? Yes. yes. So he did not take that as a legitimate excuse for burnout and exhaustion. I also pointed out that my seat on the airplane did not come with a bed and a shower. Um, so I was, made, but all the travel was made perhaps a little tiring for me. Um, but so I left with because I sort of had. I was by the time we got to the end, I was. Uh, Exhausted and uh, fried, and I could tell I was on the cusp of burnout um, because the sort of if you cannot get excited and thrilled about going to work there every day, then you probably shouldn't go to work there every day. And so I was very mm. close to that, and I was very nervous about leaving. I had been in this bubble by the time I left for eight years straight, going back to the campaign, working with the same people, working for the same person. You know, they were my friends and my family. I was working 24 hours a day, really to the exclusion of a lot of other people in my life who used to be, I was very close to, that I just had not seen very often and not gone on vacation with. I'd missed weddings and things like that because of this job. And so to leave that little cocoon of my life and go do something else was very, it was scary. And I remember sort of having watched, the advantage of having been there forever is I'd watched a lot of people I know and respect leave in it. there were sort of two approaches to it some people leave and they go through like almost depression about it where it's like you go from being in the center of everything and you're important and everyone wants your advice or your opinion or they respond to your emails in 2 seconds and then you go to that to nothing and it's like sort of like, like a feeling of shock and you sort of have to process those emotions. And then right. some people leave.
0: Retiring from sports. <laughs> exactly. Very similar, right? It's I guess I run tired. a car dealership now if I need people to come by and see. <laughs> yes, it's very similar to
1: that plot line in Ballers. And, um, <laughs> and and some people leave and they are happy and they're like excited to do all these things that they've been putting on hold for so many years. I was sure I would be in the depressed camp and I tr- actually turned out to be in the latter camp. One of the things that Good. I think help with that is my, she's my now wife, but we... She left at the same time I did, and we went to Asia and traveled around for almost two months um, and didn't really check the news. We, we oftentimes didn't get uh, international cell phone plans, so we couldn't be like getting emails and um, reading Blackberries and everything. Um, Blackberries is a real uh, sign of the times that we were mm-hmm. in and how far mm-hmm. behind the White House was in 2015. Um, And that sort of helped like decompress and get me ready for life on the outside. But it was very like I just hadn't had a Saturday and a Sunday that were all mine for almost a decade at that point.
0: It's such a first world opinion of me. But like my idea of whether a job is too much is if you can't get off for a wedding. Like I will work nonstop all hours of the day weird times way many way more than an average job but if i can't like get a time off that i really need it then i'm like nope can't do it and like that's yeah. that's it's so silly, but it's like something that kind of stands out to me. Like, what kind of pressure are you under to never be gone if you can't take off those days? That kind of s- says it all. Um, but, you know, because so the wedding,
1: the wedding, the wedding thing mat- matters a lot because yeah. it becomes the rare times when you get to see the, some people from some section of your life, right? Like, yeah. it's a wedding for someone you went to high school with. It's the one time you're going to see those people, maybe for a decade. And then it's, you know, a friend from college. And so, yeah, like, I like, I like there are weddings that I miss I super regret because some of those people... I haven't seen in years and years because of that, right? There just hasn't been a wedding to catch those people.
0: It's really hard to gather people for anything other than a wedding or a funeral, which is sad. Um, I have a friend who's turning 40 and I advised her in the body to be like, I still hope I get married, but if I don't, (laughs) it's (laughs) just like my wedding. I want to see all of you. I'm not married yet. Please come to this party. Um, And I think it's working. She's getting a good, getting a head, good head count for Mexico. Going to be a good time. Um, So you go to be VP of Communications and Policy at GoFundMe. What what drove that? And like, when you left the White House, did you think I'm just going to wait till the next campaign I want to be a part of, or, or did you say I'm burned out from what just happened in the White House? I don't want that again.
1: Well, when I the day I told Obama I was leaving, uh, it was very nice. He kind of had figured out what was coming, and I he it was the day after the State of the Union in 2015, and I went up to his office on Air Force One. We were on a sort of post State of the Union barnstorming tour to tell him what he had sort of already guessed that i was leaving and we had a like a really wonderful conversation he was so generous about it but he did at the end of it say and you know he, he's known me since i was 29 years old or whatever it was um and he said he said to me he goes you know pfeiffer what do you want to do and i was like sir i gotta be honest i got no idea He's like yeah it's kind of it's kind, he's like you're kind of at an awkward age you're too young to sort of ride on the coattails of all the stuff we did. And you're you might be a little you're getting a little old to start something new. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you're like, i was you. like thank yeah, you. I was like, sir, that was not helpful in any way, shape, or form. But I sort of took that last part as a challenge. And I was like, oh really? Well I'll do something new. And so I sort of decided I was going to go that like politics was over. I like I was never going to have an experience working for someone that I had a connection with, that I had with Obama. They had that experience where I started in the beginning, when there was no chance, I did the whole roller coaster, rocket ship ride, or whatever you call it. And I was like, well, I'm going to go work. I've never worked in anything other than politics. I'm going to go work in business. And my wife is from the Bay Area. So we moved to San Francisco, and I started working at a tech company. And I sort of had felt sort of confident in that what I had worked on was safe you know, he would obviously be succeeded by a Democrat in 2016. Our policies would be around forever. And I was Mm -hmm. sort of, I had sort of decided that politics as a profession was over. Um, Turns out that wasn't exactly the case and history did not play out as I expected, but uh, that was my
0: thinking at the time. We'll get right back to the interview, but first, what is your favorite word?
1: Thoughtful. And I don't okay. know if it's, if it's because of the meaning of it. I just use it too much and too often. And I quote, I'll give you a closer wrap, which is fulsome, which is a word I use sometimes incorrectly, as people point out to me.
0: Okay, let's start with thoughtful, circa 1200, contemplative, occupied with thought from Middle English. And then around 1851, it also started to mean showing consideration for others. Folsom is mid-13th century, meaning abundant or plentiful, from the Middle English full, meaning full, and some, meaning to a considerable degree. So it perhaps began as a sort of ironic understatement. Uh, Then it also started to take on meaning plump or well-fed in the next century. And then in the late 14th century, arousing disgust, sort of like that feeling of having overeaten and according to Edema Online, they think maybe that nauseous meaning led to the other definition of offensive or bad for, you know, taste or good manners in the early 15th century. Um, and then finally, in the 1660s, especially, you know, especially or excessively flattering became a meaning as well. But Dan, if you're wondering how to use it correctly now, since about the 1960s, it's most commonly used in that original favorable sense of just abundant, plentiful, fulsome. Speaking of great words, you gonna to learn today. The word of the week is well. Since this is the first pod of the month of July, we'll grab one from my Moira Rose calendar. Petty fogging, as in Alexis. Now is not the time for petty fogging. This word arrived on the scene back in the 1560s, meaning an inferior or petty attorney employed in small or mean business, attorney of the baser sort. Often treated as two words or maybe hyphenated, first being petty, and the second, the provincial fogger, which could mean a huckster, a cheat, one who engages in mean or disreputable practices. But Edam Online also said it's uh, maybe from the obsolete Dutch Fokker, from Flemish fokken to cheat, or from Middle English fugger. And all of those are linked to the name fugger. It was a renowned family of merchants and financiers from 15th century to 16th century in Augsburg, Germany. And because of that family in German, Flemish and Dutch, the name Fugger became a word that meant monopolist or rich man. But the Old English Dictionary also points out the word pedifactor who was a legal agent who undertakes small cases, which in the 1580s came a little bit later, but might be the source of pettifogger. The verb that Moira uses, pettifogging, is rare and attested only in the 1610s. So after all that, in a sentence, it was both predictable and infuriating to see coverage of the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team's final Olympic tune-up, a 4-0 win over Mexico on Monday, plagued by the petty fogging of far right websites, operating in bad faith as they attempted to stir up animus for the team based on the anthem stances of players. Petty fogging. Now let's get back to the interview. So when does Keeping It 1600, when does Crooked Media, at first it was with uh, The Ringer before Crooked Media was founded. When does all that come into your life and lure you back in? So in it was early 2016
1: when I left the White House one of the things I did before I took a real job was I did some <laughs> freelance writing for Grantland um,
0: yeah
1: and had gotten to know Bill Simmons a little bit through that and so and I got I had met Bill Simmons through various White House things when he had interviewed Obama and Obama was a big fan of his book his book of basketball when it came out and so I was I did I like just some fun. Like not a job, just some fun writing. Like I wrote a piece about um, how how Tom Brady could handle Deflate the PR of Deflate Gate better, and some you know some fun pop culture things like that. And so then, uh, and I was going to do more, and then then Bill left ESPN, and it was sort of uh, and so the Grantland thing kind of came to an end. And then um, when he started The Ringer, he reached out to John Favreau and I to see if we had any interest in doing a politics podcast for him. And we, and John and I thought, sure, why not? And he's like, well, why don't you guys come on my podcast and we'll talk about this race. This is Trump is running now. It's like, there's a lot of, you know, there's obviously a lot of interest in politics and he's just, the ringer has just started. Um, and he said, well, why don't you guys come on my podcast? We'll talk about the election and we'll see how it goes. And if people like it, and you guys like it, we we'll, will see if there's something you guys can do on your own for the ringer. We're like, sure. And it's like, you know, being on Bill Simmons podcast is one of those things that, uh, is a is a you like where people you never who would never pay a one lick of attention to a single thing that i ever did in the white house like like be on meet the press or anything right. like that would definitely respond to the bill simmons thing um and it was like super fun and we had a great conversation and he was like well why don't you guys do do a test pod and so we we just did a test pod john and i just called each other and talked about politics which we had basically been doing for the previous. 10 years anyway, and right, John Favreau, uh, who
0: was uh, the director, yeah, yes, yes, right? yeah. yes, director of speech writing for Obama, right? Yeah.
1: Director of speech writing Obama and now co host the Pots of America with me. And we and a couple uh, years younger
0: than you. So kind of a, yes. a similar age and and someone you'd maybe hung, hung out with at the White House outside of just yeah. work stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. Very good. Very good friend. He was also in the campaign from the very first day. So we worked in that whole campaign together. Yeah. He's too like to point out, uh, like seven years younger than me. Um that out a lot. Um, and but but we were very good friends and and worked together very close for a number of years. We did this podcast. We sort of th- we didn't I don't didn't really understand what test podcast mean meant. And so we recorded it and then they posted it like very soon after <laughs> that. <laughs> and like I'm sure the misunderstanding was on our part, but then it was just like, <laughs> check out this new unnamed politics podcast with my friend John Favreau. And people really responded to it well. And so we started keeping it 1600. And then, uh, sort of separately before we did that, John Favreau uh, and then our friends and former coworkers, Tommy Vitor and John Lovett, had been working on a separate project that was sort of um, some ideas around what a political talk show would look like. They weren't really thinking podcasts at the time. Um, and so that they came on and started doing it with us. So we were doing two a week, um, six, keeping it at 1600. And we did that all the way through the election and it ended up being a lot of fun. But we really viewed it as a hobby. Like, I still like politics. Politics is not my job, but I'm interested in it. There's obviously this incredibly interesting, crazy election. Like, what a time to, like, talk about it. This was a way to do it that I thought um, allowed me to... Talk about it in a way that wasn't just like answering questions in 30 second sound bites on cable news or something like that. It was like a more informal, accessible way to talk about it. But our sort of view was, especially from anyone who listened to it back then, I said Hillary Clinton was going to win. And when she won, we would probably finish the podcast. Like that would probably be it. We'd probably do a little bit until Obama left, and then we'd all go back to our daily lives. And then obviously, like many other elections in my life, that did not turn out the way I expected. Right. And that led us to... So John, John, and Tommy then decided that what they really wanted to do was found a media company. Because that's sort of what they've been thinking about, interested in for a very long time. I was still working at CoFundMe at the time. So the idea of sort of running a media company um, was not something I'd given a lot of thought to. And so they formed it, and it became the, host, the home of Pod Save America. It's now opposed to lots of other many many things of all across politics and pop culture and now even some sports, um, but it was created because we viewed taking the platform that we had built in 2016 and to see if we could use that in a way that dealt you know, to channel our reaction to the election and talk about what we could do about that, and that sort of was the genesis that led us to leave the ringer, which is a very different, uh, which was very wonderful to us, but had as a very different sort of approach and to do a more politics activist focused endeavor.
0: So you're at Crooked Media and now you have uh, a mouthpiece, a microphone, a space to watch uh, as the Trump presidency begins and see so much of the things that you worked on dismantled. And a lot of people have asked President Obama about this. But I'm curious, from your perspective, you're working um, so hard on on creating a a different world and a different country and doing all these things from from a place of of. Um, great research and time and effort Mm -hmm. and doing it the right way. How do you react in the moment as you start to realize that so much of what's going to happen is being done often out of spite, didn't really seem like there was even a good reason sometimes to dismantle some of the stuff that had been done during the administration.
1: You know, it was, it was hard, right? It was emotionally hard. Like you invest so much in these things like years of your life and you think they're incredibly important. That's why you do them. That's why you make the sacrifices for them. And like, in the moment, it was incredibly hard. In some of this stuff, like also, you have the ability to know, like if we wrote an executive order and Trump undoes it with an executive order, then the next Democratic president can just put it back in again, right? There's there were each thing had a different level of seriousness to it. Um, the thing we were mo- all of us were most concerned about was uh, President Obama's healthcare law being repealed because that's something mm. that you if that goes, that doesn't come back in any simple way. It can't simply be redone. But the way, you know, it took a long time and in, in, in actually a conversation with President Obama about it as it was you know in those early Trump years to sort of reset my thinking to like I can be angry about it in the moment because this is a thing I care about. I think is good for the world. I think it helps people and I don't want things that I don't think are good for the world to happen. And it's even more offensive when it happens like from your old office. Um, but the way to think about it is all, you know, more often than not, presidents particularly two-term presidents are, are succeeded by presidents by someone from the other party mm. and there's and it hit they like that is the arc of history right that is oftentimes two steps forward one step back and all you can do as a person who's involved in it is know that you did the best you could to make as many people's lives better as possible in the time you had and what comes after yeah. that we have no we have no control over right it's, that's such a healthy
0: like, I, approach yeah it, it's it's
1: easier to say than to actually feel but um you know that that's that was sort of the mentality we try. I tried to bring to it, and, you know. And President Obama is very Spock and Zed like, and so he can he can <laughs> handle that better than I possibly can. But that's sort of the way to sort of think about it. Is it doesn't undo what we like? Yes, it undoes some sort of some policy we put in place, but it doesn't undo the work because the work we did helped some people for the period it was in. You know, per our beliefs, but also you know, move the ball forward, right? And I
0: do, right. you know. advance the conversation, change yeah. the sort of whatever the middle is on, on yeah. so many things. Yes, Absolutely. and Obama,
1: Obama always says progress is not a straight line and that's sort of something that's like very hard to remember or to like in the moment, but it's sort of an important way to think about it because it is sort of the arc of our history is that way.
0: Totally. Um, so in 2018, two years after that election, your book comes out, the first one, New York Times bestseller, Yes, We Still Can, Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter and Trump. Um, that was really looking back at how everyone got that election wrong. Um, sort of a path of of what you thought the Democratic Party should do going from there. Um, you share some of those fun anecdotes about your pants splitting and Kanye mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Yeah. And I'm sure had to wrestle with what to share and what not to share from yeah. your White House time. Um, and then February of last year, it's a second book, Untrumping America: A Plan to Make America a Democracy Again, and. You're writing this before the election, so there's a very you know possible chance that he's elected again, and everything that you write sort of is either moot and or is you know doesn't age well. But so much of what you talk about in the book is not just the election, but the fact that Trump as a person um, doesn't disappear when he does, it's the ideas and and the extension of what he believed and created the Republican Party to be, um, and how that will keep going beyond him unless there's a different strategy. When you're writing that book and you understand, of course, you want people to read it in the months leading up to the election, but you don't want it to be a book that's six months worth of, of time, right? right? What were you considering in terms of the now and then reading this even a year or five years from now?
1: you know it i
0: found
1: fa- i found this with both of my books is that writing about contemporary politics in a declarative way is very hard because it changes so quickly um. You know, and this is a true of any endeavor. Like you can write a book about sports, and
0: yeah, we're you know, all going to years... end up on freezing cold takes. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly.
1: And <laughs> you know, I, what was stuck in my head was there was this book that came out in 2006 called "The Way to Win," and it was like this big deal in DC. And it was these big important reporters who had written it, and it was about how to how how the 2008 election would play out, and who were you know what would what was likely to happen. And you could read that entire book, and you will never find the words Barack or Obama in there. Um, so it's like I always <laughs> had that in my head: is like I could do this. Um, so I, you know, I tried to, like, I wrote about the election. Obviously, you have, like that was what people who were the most people buy it when it first comes out. That's when it would be the most relevant. I, I tried, I would think, probably, um, certainly far from perfect, um, to take a step back and say, like how this would matter, no matter what happens in the election. But the real premise is the book is that the ideas that led to this moment to this person being president from 2017 to 2021, were not going to go away regardless of the election result. And that right. if you want and if you believed, as I do, that you wanted a politics that looked more like when my former boss was in place. You were going to have to do these things beyond the election to do it. And many people, you know, the hardcover is going to come out, the election's not over. That's, you know, that simple. It's, as many people point out, the paperback was going to come out the summer after the election. And it's very possible that my premise that all these ideas would still be hanging around would be wrong. I really wrestled with that. I did. God, I that. wish you were. Yeah. <laughs> that, as I said, it's like, <laughs> it, you know, a book. That, I thought to myself, well, a book that doesn't age well is really a small price to pay for something I feel at like this point yeah. about. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, that was not the case. That's how it's played itself out. There was one line in there that I had to change. Most of it, I've, I've gone back and I've read it since the paperback came out in June. And, um, Have And I feel pretty good. I was nervous to read it because I basically wrote the book. It came out. I went on this book tour for like three weeks. The pandemic hit. I came home and then didn't leave my house for 14 months or whatever. Right. And so I hadn't really like wrestled like I hadn't picked it up and thought about it or really talked about it like you do. When you write a book and you're doing book tours and you're doing these events and you're doing signings and things like that. And so I rewrite it for the purposes of writing a new like little epilogue to it for the paperback edition and I was like, I felt pretty good about how it um, how it held up. There was this one footnote that pointed out, it was just like a, a joke about how, of all the things you would say about Trump is that he had not yet helped lead, lead America into a historic recession. So the book came out on February 20th. America went into recession, I think, in early April. <laughs> so, there
0: you go. Yeah, that one, we,
1: <laughs> just because I wanted to be fully transparent, I didn't delete the, uh, Footnote from the paperback version, but I did <laughs> I point out how wrong I was.
0: Uh, oh, I I had a Facebook memory pop up uh from the year before, or maybe it was 2018, that was just constant travel for a story I was doing. It was like 14 flights in two months or something. Yeah. And I posted, can I just like have a job where I don't leave my house and snuggle with my dog? <laughs> yes. And it popped up during the pandemic, and I was like, whoops, my bad. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry guys. <laughs> I manifested this. Yeah. Uh, it's not as great as I thought. Um So I'm kind of curious as we wrap up here, um, you're diving into what, again, for me has been a hellscape just from the periphery, like constant checks on mental health by stepping away from the news. And and even occasionally and and it's a bummer stepping away from Pod Save America and love it or leave it and all these things that I love, because when it became less of an imminent threat of like at any given day, some news could break where you're like, what? How? Um, I just was like, okay I don't need to know every single thing every second anymore. I need to recover from that. How do you do that? And can you? You
1: know, it's I'm very. And this has been my life for so long. It's just been like consuming news nonstop. It's basically every day since I graduated from college, which is probably uh, maybe uh, not the wisest life choice. But, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it, like I find escapism in, you know, obviously my family. Um, you know, my, my daughter was born in 2018, my son was born two and a half months ago. And so, like, that is a real distraction because. Uh, If I look at my phone too much, my daughter will tell me to put it away. Um, Oh, I love that. And guilt. uh, Yeah, she's very, (laughs) she's very, she's very persuasive. Um, And but then like sports and pop culture, and I try like most of my, I listen to a small handful of podcasts, but most podcasts I listen to are sports related. Like that's my escape. And even when politics bumps into sports, as it's been known to do periodically in the last few years, but it just it happens. But just like nerding out like on a Zach Lowe podcast about NBA analytics (laughs) or, or Mina Kimes's podcast about uh, NFL analytics or something like that. It's just like a good way to not think about these other things. And, and, you know, you, many people that I know have sort of, you know, either during the Trump years or after the Trump years have sort of stepped away at times because you, I mean, this has been 2020 was an insane year, no matter what you believe, right. A pandemic an election stuck in your home, trying to, in Many cases like work or deal with like scary financial situations with your kids at home, now. all of that is so hard. And it's like these things are you know marathons, not sprints, right? It is, uh, I'm probably butchering some sort of running analogy which you can pour me out on, but is <laughs> that, uh, that you know, it's fine to take just you know to rest and recover at various points and just get like our message of Hot America is that politics matters, it's citizenship's a full time job, that doesn't mean you have to do it every single day. It just means that you have to stay engaged. And If, if you need a mental health break, or you want to tune out, or, or you're vaccinated, and it's like you're going to be your summer of vacation and travel, go do that, right? And then there'll be elections to come to get back engaged in.
0: So that sounds great, right? Yeah. Um, and it doesn't feel like you need I guess, prescribed coping methods the way some other people might, you've found them and they're very organic, right? Listening to sports pods or whatever. But were there any moments, particularly during either the Trump presidency or even now in the aftermath where there's, you're relearning how to do your job because there isn't even a shared reality? If we can't all uh, believe in the same facts about the world, how do we then engage in conversation with people who believe differently or even those who maybe... Follow the same party, but but believe in handling things differently. Has there been a moment where you've really gotten down, or are you just just preternaturally going to be pretty level?
1: I, I mean, there have been a you know there have been lots of moments. January sixth was a moment that I was yeah. deeply disturbed by. There were moments during the campaign for sure that were incredibly. Disturbing. I think in you know the point you make about shared reality. And I have had to, and I don't have all the answers, or even most of the answers yet, you know, my job has been in political communications in some way, shape, or form my entire adult life. And that is about, that's largely about how do you win an argument about something, right? How do you convince people about the correctness of your positions or the values of the person you're working for and the methods by which you do that, the way you think about it. Is so fundamentally different when you have to like revisit all of those priors because you can't have an argument when there's not when you're not operating from the same set of facts or from any facts right. at all or a different set of reality. And so I, I spend a lot of my sort of non-sports publicity time or sports watching time, um, sort of thinking about like what that means. Like what advice I would give to politicians is that most of what I've learned about how you communicate a message, how you do public relations has to be changed. Like everything about it how you mm-hmm. think about it. Um, like I, most people don't have the answers, but the old models in politics at least do not work anymore. And that's like a lot of work to do to think about new ways to do it. That really, I think really are sort of um, somewhat scary. If you've done one thing, you know, sort of one way, your whole career and that definitely acknowledge it doesn't work anymore is also sort of acknowledging some larger, more troubling, um, trends in society have taken hold in ways that, you not know, you don't really want to be true, but I think are true.
0: Right, totally agree. Um, and I hope that our smartest minds are focused on figuring that out. Whether that's, you know, us focusing on TV instead of social media as the dominant yeah. place for rising views that are super dangerous, or the kind of um, divisiveness that's resulted from that lack of shared perspective is coming from spaces that we're not used to uh, treating as important as they become. So I hope people are focusing on the ways to get us all connected. Um, even to argue in in more productive ways would just be a, a step up from what we've got going on now. Um, last question for you, and it's um, sorry, a little depressing. You have two young kids, you mentioned Kyla and Jack.
1: Yeah. And
0: I wonder, um, it's 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 a very hopeful act to have children right now. In my opinion, <laughs> yeah. I know it's incredibly cynical, but um, I can I can say whenever I'm gone, of course, I care about all my family and friends and all of their kids. But like, I only have to wrap my mind around surviving however long I mm. will live in in the impending doom of the articles and stories I don't fully read because it mm. it, it kills me when I read too much yeah. about climate change and other things like that. Um, how do you stay hopeful? Uh, you know, I
1: I'm hopeful most of the time. and I think it's two ways. One is this is obviously pre-pandemic, but one of the privileges of getting to DuPont St. America is I got to travel all over the country, meeting all kinds of really amazing people who are doing incredibly brave things to put in play, to fight for the things they care about. And, uh, you know, there's a, like in meeting those people, whether it's people who are fighting to like the kids from... Uh, Parkland, Florida, who were fighting to stop gun violence and activists fighting for healthcare and things like that, that I think, re- and most of them are young people, and that gives me real hope for the future. And is this sort of, you know, this is maybe the the old person, the, or older, I'd say for myself, I hope, a person in me is that, uh, you know, that we always have moments, these dark moments in history, and we come out of them. It's hard. It takes time and it takes work. But, um, you know, like I said earlier, you know, progress is not move in a straight line. Um, and But we're heading in the right direction. It's just we're going to take a few detours and understanding those are, those are the exceptions, not the rule. Um, makes it, I think, easier to process some of these things.
0: Yeah, that's a great way to approach it. Uh, we're out of time. But before we let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect the kind of Spanish Inquisition.
1: It's the Spanish
0: Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. It's a 10 question speed round. Number one, your current career is canceled. All of them, podcasting, writing, etc. What job do you do instead?
1: High school basketball coach.
0: <laughs> Love it. Uh, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Um,
1: something I found out that I can't say when I was in the White House. <laughs>
0: okay. <laughs> all right. That almost happened or could happen at any time? It. It, it did not. It could have
1: happened. It did not happen. So you don't have to be scared from what I said.
0: Okay, good. I was going to say, it yeah. sounded like <laughs> Im- imminent. Yeah. Uh, number three, you could be the best in the world at one thing for one day. What is it? Basketball. Number four, what current celebrity, music, politics, TV, would you most like to be your best friend?
1: Current celebrity, music, politics, TV. the sports count?
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, Joel Embiid, <laughs> interesting dude. Yeah. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, number five. What's your biggest, mostly meaningless pet peeve?
1: My biggest, most meaningless pet peeve are people in meetings who read the deck, the PowerPoint deck, to you. <laughs> there's some people i work with are i hope don't hear this but yes
0: yeah me too one of the shows i'm on it's like here's the document we sent all of you now i'm going to read it to you even though presumably you read it um number six what's the most embarrassed you've ever been um pants splitting and amazingly, you managed to survive without anyone knowing in the moment, as far as you know. Um, but I had to, yeah. I had to know, which was the hard part. You had to know. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve?
1: My patience.
0: Mm, hell yeah. I hear that one. Uh, number eight, any musician or band, alive or dead, can play your next party. Who is it?
1: Kanye West, circa 2011. Wow. Well, I'm going to say that Kanye West circa 2008,
0: a okay. different Kanye. the old Kanye, as you would say. Yeah. I'm, I'm here for like through the wire Kanye more yeah. so than yeah, more recent. That would be, a, yeah. that would be a good show. Number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure?
1: Biggest failure. They are many and they are manifest. Um, <laughs> biggest failure. Um, much of my high school sports career would be high on that list. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, put that, I would put that pretty high. You did your best,
0: though. Is that I really a failure?
1: Try, I tried, but I, I feel like I left something on the table.
0: It okay. wasn't a big All table.
1: Right. There wasn't There wasn't much there, but there was more. <laughs> there. Uh,
0: number 10, what three individual words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Nice.
1: Thoughtful and smart. I was waiting for Folsom. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but It really depends on how you use it. Cause if you use the right, the, so the primary definition, not great. Secondary definition <laughs> that really I choose true. much better.
0: <laughs> uh, and bonus question. Who should I have in this podcast? Who's someone fascinating, interesting. Doesn't matter what industry they're in. Stacy Abrams. Oh gosh. I would love to have, are you putting a good Just, word for me?
1: Absolutely. She is the best. She is so smart, so thoughtful. I mean, she is someone who saved democracy and then wrote a legal thriller that was the number one bestseller just all right. Since the election. She's insane. It's very, yeah, it's incredible.
0: Unbelievable. Um, well, I might be following up with you on that because I would love to have her. Thanks so much for coming on. I know how busy you are. And it's really interesting uh, to get to talk to you about some of this stuff. And I am infinitesimally more hopeful than before.
1: Okay, well, if we can just do one iota of additional help, then I feel like my time is well spent here.
0: <laughs> Perfect. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. This is a place where I rant or rave, tell you something to listen to, watch, or read. And this week, it's a great story I think you should check out. Uh, it is an f- infuriating story, but one that you need to know. And it's Karen Ataya in the Washington Post writing about FINA, which is the International Swimming Federation, deciding to ban sole caps. Now, these are swimming caps designed to accommodate natural Afro hair, and they've been banned from the upcoming Olympics. If you want to read the story, the headline is, the International Swimming Federation just gave black swimmers everywhere a wet slap in the face. Here's a little bit from the story. Quote, FINA says one of its goals is to encourage a worldwide campaign for swimming for all, swimming for life, But this dunderheaded move encourages swimming for some. It sends the message to black people that the world of swimming isn't for them. That our kinky, coily, braided, or dreaded hair is not a quote-unquote natural form. And by the way, no one's asking for special advantage here. As many angry swimmers pointed out on Twitter, a larger cap produces more drag in the water. FINA's argument that to its quote, best knowledge, the athletes competing at such international events never used nor required caps of such size and configuration is infuriatingly tautological. The caps weren't needed because there weren't that many black swimmers who needed them. Read the full story. Get infuriated. Add that to the multiple rulings disproportionately affecting black female athletes this Olympics, and you'll be reminded that we have a very long way to go for equality of sport, fairness of treatment, And evolution from the awful explanation of it's always been like this or we've always done it this way or we've never needed this before and how that perpetuates and supports systems of inequality and racist practices. We need to amplify these conversations and have them and make it uncomfortable for the Olympic federations across the world to be making these decisions that disproportionately punish black athletes. You can always tweet me, at Sarah Spain, if you've got some guest suggestions, questions, a dilemma for me. And you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, rate it five stars, please, and leave me a review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's What She Said.